0: Uh, we're going to be in the book of Numbers today. Uh, we are going through the Old Testament. We're taking a look at uh, the story of the children of Israel, connecting a lot of those stories into the New Testament, how those stories ultimately will point us to Christ. Um, why We're also t- trying to understand why the Old Testament is still valuable for us. So part of what that's going to entail here, at least for the next few weeks, is uh, going um, under the hood of the first five books of the Bible, they, they lay so much of an important foundation for us. But the, the problem I think a lot of us run into, especially with the first five books, is that they can be a little bit strange and sometimes they can be a little bit boring. So last week, my goal was to redeem Leviticus in your eyes, which I hope maybe I did, and and hopefully that you have kind of maybe a, a, a newfound respect for Leviticus and can read it with fresh eyes, and tonight I want to do the same thing for Numbers. I think part of one of the things that trips us up a little bit in the Old Testament is that we don't see the book as a whole, we don't understand maybe what it's accomplishing, and so... We look at Numbers chapter 1, and it's literally a list of a bunch of a census is what it is. It's a bunch of numbers and a, a count of a bunch of people in there. And then you get to the end of the book, and it's, again, a whole bunch of numbers. And it seems to lose its relevance because as you're reading through it, you're told to, i got to read Numbers one to th- chapters 1 to 3, and you get in there, chapter 1, you're like, I don't, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to make it. All right, so, um, so the hope is that as we see the structure of the book of Numbers and look at some of the things that are happening in it, you'll start to see some key themes that are popping up. And these are not themes that are altogether different than we've seen already in um, the first few books. But it helps us to understand where the children of Israel are going. And most importantly, remember, there's a tragic event that has taken place in Genesis chapter 3. You remember what this tragic event is where Adam and Eve sought to define wisdom by their own eyes. And so they rejected God's word and instead sought to figure out what would be best. The fruit looks good for wisdom and well I think we might need wisdom in order to to you know do what God has commanded us when God has specifically commanded them you don't need that kind of wisdom. And so what we're going to what we see in chapter 4 of Genesis and all the way up to through the entire Old Testament, really, even to our own, very own day today, is that we still look to define wisdom by our own eyes. Um, the children of Israel have been camped out at, the, at Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai. And there God has descended on Mount Sinai and has invited Moses into his presence. The priests are up on the mountain a little bit closer and the people are down at the base And God has given them instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And we saw in Exodus where there's the commissioning of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle. They finally get the tabernacle finished, and Moses can't enter in. The the presence of God is descended on the tabernacle, but there is a problem in that nobody is fit to actually walk into his presence. So we get the book of Leviticus, which we looked at last week, where we see the... Purity laws, what the the children of Israel have to do in order to even approach the presence of God. And so that's sort of laid out for them in Leviticus and how they are to operate as a society. So now that we've got all of the groundwork laid, the tabernacle is built, the law has been laid down for them, now we're going to be able to pick up and get going. And so this has been the goal the whole time get them out of Egypt go to Mount Sinai, establish the law, teach them what it is, get uh, a tabernacle built so God can dwell with his people again, and then let's get going into the promised land. This is what the whole uh, first three books have been building towards. In fact, even as early as Genesis 12, Abraham has promised this land, it's going to be yours And so all of Genesis is building toward when are we gonna get to that land? Exodus, when are we gonna get to that land? Leviticus, when are we gonna get to that land? Numbers, finally, we're going to the land. But (laughs) this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. And so we're gonna go, uh, we're gonna take a kind of a deep dive, but also a high overview through uh, the book of Numbers and look at some of the key stories that take place there. Um, What we call the book of Numbers is called in the Hebrew, in the wilderness. Ba Midbar, in the wilderness. And because this the vast majority of the story that is being told is not really about the census. That's where we get the title, is because the numbers that are taken of the of the people at the very beginning and the end of the book. But the vast majority of the book is about the wilderness wanderings that the children of Israel go through. And so if you look at, at kind of a high overview of the book of Numbers, you'll see it's divided into three main parts. So you have their, their time at Mount Sinai. Then you have their time at Paran, in the wilderness of Paran. And then you have them finally, at the very end of the book, uh, move to the plains of Moab. And in between each one of those main sections is a little travel narrative. So you have their time at Mount Sinai, followed by a travel narrative, Paran, short travel narrative, Plains of Moab. And so that's kind of how the book is structured. And so we'll look at each one of those, what happens, all the main places, and then the traveling that happens in between. And what I think you'll see is a very uh, repetitive theme that keeps coming up in the book of Numbers, which is the key bone of contention between God and Moses and the people, and you'll see what that is in just a second. So the census there is taken um, in uh, the very beginning of Numbers, and what the the purpose of that census is to catalog all the people in Israel that are traveling with them, that are fighting men, ages twenty years old and up. So we're going to take a uh, just a census of all of those people. And that's going to be important. Now, why is that important? Yeah, for war. They're preparing for war. All right? Because, hey, we're, we're, this is what the whole thing is about, right? Getting back into the promised land. Small problem. There are people living in the promised land. So what are we going to do? They're going to drive them out. As uncomfortable as that may sound, they're going to kill them all. Or that's at least what they're supposed to do. So we'll get to that in Joshua. That's a big kind of hurdle we got to tackle. But that's the point. And so they've got to take the numbers. How many fighting men do we actually have? And so there is the census. Now, one group is not categorized in the census, and that is the tribe of Levi. Do we know why the tribe of Levi is not calculated? Uh, What is it? They are the priests. And what does that mean? They're the priests. They set up the tabernacle and take it down. There's a big reason, though, that because they're the priest, they belong to someone. They belong to the Lord. They're his possession. So, in other words, they're kind of like soldiers for the Lord, as it were. (laughs) So, when when it comes to providing for the children of Israel... The, the, the Levites, they, they can't be the ones going out into war. They can't be the ones laying down their lives. They're here in the tabernacle laying down their life for me. That's, that's what they're doing. So if you look at a couple of our passages here, you'll see Levi, uh, in the book of uh, Numbers, let's see, on your packet sheet or your verse sheet here on the back, Numbers uh, 1, 47, and 49, uh, you'll see, but the Levites were not, lit, it's the third block down But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. You shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. Um, And then he says in 3, 44 and 45, which is the next one down, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. So it's kind of repeated over and over to Moses and to Aaron that the Levites belong to him, so you're not to take them in the census. They belong to me. So don't worry about them. Don't count them amongst your fighting men. Um, now, it appears as though as the, um, the Levites are laid out, you have, uh, or as far as the, the camp that's laid out, they're given specific instructions on how the camp is supposed to be arranged. So you have the camp of the tabernacle, which is in the middle of the camp, and then encircled around that, you have the Levites. They're the closest ones. They're the priests of the tabernacle. They are the closest ones in camp to the tabernacle. Around that, you have in all other directions from the tabernacle, you have uh, in all the cardinal directions, you have all of the other tribes and they're sorted out as God has dictated how they should be camped. So you have Judah uh, as the leader amongst the tribes, and he is facing east, and you'll see that Judah is the one that packs up first and is leading the rest of the tribes out. Even though Judah is the f- uh, fourth son, I believe he no third son, he is listed first on the list. Um, he is the firstborn, considered the firstborn. He has the, the birthright, as it were. So Judah is listed first. He's going to lead the people. This would be uh, a visual representation of what we think it something like what it would have looked like. Um, I don't have the cardinal directions up here on the graphic, but um, if you would say if this was going to be east, some disagree, some say Judah would have been the first one here. So this would have been the tabernacle, obviously. This would have been the the camps of the Levites around the tabernacle. And then here would have been probably the tribe of Judah. Some say he would have been down here at the very back, of the, of the tribes, that would have been the leader going out when they lead he'll take off this way and everybody else will follow in behind him Okay, but that's the point is that they're all kind of camped out next to each other some, you'll see some graphic representations of it would have the tribes side by side lined up like this but if you look at the numbers just at the sheer numbers we're talking hundreds of thousands of people here so uh, and that's just the men. Okay, so you have cattle, you have women, children, you have various other things that, are, that would be there. No doubt, uh, I think it probably makes the most sense that they're sort of lay, laid out in, a, in sort of a cross-type fashion around um, the encampment. Okay? Does everybody see that? Questions about that? Oh, seems pretty clear. Straightforward. Okay. All right. Good deal. Um, so then... The presence of the Lord is descended on the tabernacle, and it is symbolized by this cloud that appears over the tabernacle by day, and then at night it is a pillar of fire. And um, and so then the people know when they are to leave, because the cloud picks up from the tabernacle and begins moving. They know then to pick up the remains of the tabernacle, pack it all up, and then uh Take off, follow the cloud or the pillar of fire by night. Um, And it forms the kind of the presence of the Lord that's right there along with them and leading them through the wilderness. Now, as they begin to go, this is where everything breaks loose, all right? Where everything goes haywire is when they, everything's fine. And while they're packed up and they're around the tabernacle for the most part, but then as soon as they pack up and start traveling, Everything goes crazy. Uh, along the way, the people start to complain um, about what's going on, about following Moses, about walking through the wilderness. And I don't know if you know anything about God, but uh, He doesn't take kindly to complaining. And so, He does what anyone would probably do, and He kills them. <laughs> Very simply, he, he burns a lot of them. Uh, and Moses intercedes on their behalf. This is the craziest part about the whole thing is that all the time that the children of Israel have this problem with the Lord, or maybe it should be, should we, we should say the Lord has the problem with the children of Israel, Moses intercedes on their behalf and pleads with the Lord, and the Lord uh, pulls back from what he's doing with them. He, he quits um, doing that, and then the people, funny thing, they commence to complaining again. So, as uh, they complain again and they say, you know, this time, look, we are so sick of just eating manna. We're tired of it. We don't we don't get anything else. We just eat manna. Now, it, it's described to us in numbers that manna was like coriander seed, which is a tiny little white seed. And that what they would do is they would they would you know, pick it up. They would gather it in the morning. They would grind it into a, like a, a powder and they would make cakes out of them. They taste like cakes baked in oil is what it says. You had me at cakes. I'm there. I don't see what the problem is. Um, But after, I guess, several years of eating the same thing, you get tired of it. And all we want is some meat. Can we just have some meat? To which God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to gather all the elders together and I'm going to tell them that I'm going to give them some meat. I'm going to give them so much meat that they're going to want to vomit out of their nose meat. I'm not going to give it to them for a day. I'm not going to give it to him for a week. I'm not going to give it to him for a couple weeks. I'm going to give it to him for an entire month. They're going to eat nothing but quail. And by the end of that month, they're going to want to puke at the sight of quail. And so that's what he does. But he can't stop there. Once they start eating the quail, it says, While the quail was still betwixt their teeth, he sent a plague to kill them. So many more die. Starting to notice a theme pop up. <laughs> um, all right. Um, yeah, I think I may have a repeat here. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. Um, then, not only that, so that's in chapter 11, but then in chapter 12, Israel's not the only one complaining against Moses. Now, Aaron and Miriam start complaining about Moses. Who's Miriam? We know? Yeah, the sister of Moses. Who's Aaron? The brother of Moses. His right hand in his left hand. And now they start complaining about Moses' leadership. What makes Moses so special? Now, Miriam is particularly mad. It seems like in the text, she's the most mad, mainly because Moses has um, married this Cushite woman, which is a Ethiopian, we think, uh, is Ethiopian descent. Now, people disagree on who this is. We we don't uh, really know. Most people think it is his wife that we met at the very beginning, Jethro's daughter, but there's some Jethro goes by a couple of different names in the scriptures, and so then he in the text it just says the Cushite woman because he married the Cushite woman. So what we take it as is that uh, Miriam wasn't a fan of Moses' wife probably for a long time, and she finally started had had enough of it for some reason, and she started to voice it, and uh, this doesn't go so well with the Lord the Lord calls Aaron and Miriam and Moses all together and brings them in close. And he says, now, most of the prophets, I put my word in their mouth, not Moses. Moses, I speak to face to face. Why is it that you question him? At which point, Aaron and Miriam and Moses all start to go, uh oh, this is not going to end well. Okay. And so, The Lord obviously has descended like a cloud, and when he pulls back, Miriam is white as snow. She's leprous. And both Moses and Aaron intercede on her behalf, and the Lord says, tell you what, why don't you kick her outside the camp for seven days and let her learn her lesson, and it should be okay. And so they do, and they wait to leave until Miriam comes back. Now, So that's the travel narrative right there in the middle. So they've left Sinai. They begin traveling. The people immediately start to complain. The Lord begins to kill a lot of the people. Moses begins to intercede on their behalf. The Lord pulls back. Then it's Aaron and Miriam. The Lord begins to work, whatever you want to say, against Miriam. Evil, if you want to say that, or or bad things against Miriam. She has leprosy. And Moses intercedes on her behalf, and the Lord pulls back, all right? Then they get to the wilderness of Paran. Now, just as a point of reference here, I know some of this is really small. That's okay. Um, Paran is down here in the south. This is the Sinai Peninsula, okay? So it goes down here. We'd have the Red Sea coming all the way down here by the drum kit, all right? Um, But the, the, the wilderness of Paran is right here, so they've moved up from Mount Sinai, and they're encamped up here. And they're going to send spies into the land. And the spies are going to go all the way up through here. We'll look at a closer view of that in just a minute. But um, they're going to send spies. That's The the path you're seeing there is the path of the spies. And so that's exactly what they do. When they get to um, Paran, you'll also see it called Kadesh Barnea sometimes. That's, That's where they roam. Moses is told by the Lord to send spies into the land. Now, um, look at Numbers 13, 1 to 2. You see it there on your verse list. Somebody read that out loud. Okay. So the Lord tells Moses, send spies into the land. He sends spies into the land. Does this go well? You know these stories. Does this go well? No, it doesn't. Why doesn't it go well? Well, they get into the land. They start looking around. And they go from the very southern entrance of the land. They go all the way to the north. I mean, you can go back to the map here. You can see they go, I mean, they're all the way up here by the end. This is the Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee. They're all the way up here by the end. All right. So they go as far north as you can possibly go. They scope it all out and they come back and two men have a good report. Hey, we can take these guys. Ten of the men that, that go say, no, we can't. In fact, they say not only that, but in the land, there are giants there. We can't go into the land. The the giants, they have walls all around their cities. Their cities are so massive. There's absolutely no way we can take them. Spoiler alert. In Joshua, they're going to walk into the land. And where they walk up to the people in battle, the people flee from in front of them. So there's some debate about what they saw when they get into the land. The 10 men come back and they say, there are giants there. They even say in one part of the story, look, the Nephilim are there. The sons of the Anakim, they have the giants of old before the flood. They're there in the land. They're massive people. There's absolutely no way we can take them out. And a lot of people believe that, yeah, there were some giants in the land like there were before the flood. I would say anything that the 10 men tell you about the land is probably should be taken with a grain of salt. I, I, it sounds to me like an exaggeration. They say, we're, we were grasshoppers in front of them. <laughs> we were tiny little bugs. They would smush us. And, and so I, I think that probably they're telling a fish tale because they don't think that they can go through the land and practically swallow these, these up. If, if you go to Israel, now we're planning on going to Israel in March. And I would encourage you, if you can, join us. That would be a really good, good thing. Um, but we, I would really love to go and to take you to see this, because when you walk into some of these cities, and granted, not all of them are going to be cities that we're going to find here, like Jericho and things like that. But when you go up to these cities, they're tiny. These are not, we're not talking Tuscaloosa. That's not what we're, t- don't, don't think Tuscaloosa when you think of a city of ancient, of the ancient Near East. Think from here to North River Church and maybe up to Publix, all right, a city, okay? That's what what you've got in your mind, all right, made up of a few hundred people. So they come back, and what they're reporting are giants and walls that are, you know, impregnable. You have hundreds of thousands of fighting men. I think you can take them. So, you see the disparity here, the level of cowardice, maybe? Not only that, remember, this is what we've been waiting for all throughout Egypt. The promise from Abraham in Genesis, 400 years in Egypt and and at the base of Sinai, ready now to finally go into the promised land. And we get there, it's within shouting distance. And we are scoping it out and we come back and God says, I'm going to give this to you. And that's the sin here, isn't it? What we just read in Numbers 13, 1 and 2 is God saying, get 12 men, send them into the the promised land, the land that I'm going to give you. So when they come back and they say, we can't do it, what is that? Fear. Fear, distrust. You're doubting the very hand of God himself. Okay, back up just a second. What have they been doing to Moses this whole time? They've been complaining against Moses. But what we saw as they were coming out of Egypt and going up to Mount Sinai, they were doing the same thing there. They were complaining against Moses. But what did Moses tell them? You're not complaining against me, you're complaining against the Lord. So, their complaint against the leader that God has installed over them is really a complaint against God. So, it should come as no surprise when God says, Go into the land, that they get there and they go, Yeah, we don't trust the Lord here either. If they don't trust his leader, then why are they going to trust him? They're not. Moses got another harebrained notion here leading us into the promised land. It's crazy. You see these people? They're huge. There's no way we can beat them. So they come back and they say there's giants that live there. But there's two among them, Joshua and Caleb. They said otherwise. But here's the deal. Not only did the ten go into the promised land and come back with a bad report, they didn't just tell it to Moses. That's the problem. They whipped the other people up into a frenzy. You know what Moses is trying to do? You know what he's trying to do here? He's trying to lead us into the promised land. Are you crazy? You see these people? You should have seen them. Oh, they were huge. I mean, yeah, it's got some good things in there, but good grief. There's no way we can beat them. You want to lose your life? I don't. You should see what these people look like. It's crazy. They whipped everybody else up into a frenzy. And so what was the result? Take a lap around the desert. <laughs> that's <what it> was. <laughs> you want a lap? Take a lap. <laughs> Slap him on the rear end and have him go. Fine. If you want, if if you don't want to go into the promised land, then that's what you can do. You can take a lap around the desert, and the lap will last for forty years. So basically, God tells them, not basically, he tells them flat out, you're not only going to take a lap around the desert, you're going to spend 40 years in the desert, and it's going to kill off every single person in this generation. In fact, no one in this generation is actually even going to see the promised land. I'm going to give it to your kids. All because of your mistrust. Again, it's not just complaining. It's what complaining symbolizes. Complaining is a mistrust of God. Um, all right. So uh, not only did, they, did he tell them 40 years, but then there's another little addition to the story right after that where they said, you know what? We sinned against the Lord. We didn't trust him. Now he's going to kill us in the, in, the, in the desert for 40 years. So here's what we'll do. Why don't we just go into the promised land ourselves? Why don't we just take it? So then they go try to fight some people. And they get their rear end kicked. <laughs> and there's no record that they ever try it again. <laughs> so they're, they're like, okay, we get it, we get it. We're going to have to take a lap around the desert. We're going to have to spend some time here, and we're all going to die. Now, you would think that what produces what's produced here is a little bit of humility, where the people start to go, you know what, Lord, we realize that we should have trusted you. We sinned greatly. We... We're going to trust you instead from here on out. We're going, to, we're going to do whatever it is that you ask us to do. We're not going to you know, complain anymore, but that's not what they do. They actually start to complain again against Moses. This time, it's a bunch of Levites. Who are the Levites? The priests. So now the priests begin to have a complaint against Moses. What makes you so special? Moses, Aaron, you go way too far. I don't think you're actually speaking. What makes you so special? I serve in the, in, the, in the tabernacle too. What makes you more special than us? We serve the elements. We you know, help the people. We teach the law. We do all of these kinds of things. What makes you so special? Look at Numbers 16, 1 to 3. Somebody read that when you got it. It's the second block from the bottom on the second page there. All right, so you'd think they'd have learned their lesson. Most of all, the priests. The priests are the ones that start to whip everybody else up into a frenzy, and they start to criticize their leaders. So what do you think is going to happen? Just take a wild guess. Someone's going to die, Some- <laughs> Someone's gonna die. Um, which is exactly what happens. Uh, so I can't remember if I have a blank here or not. No, I don't have a blank. So basically, the Lord tells him, uh, "Yeah, why, why don't you gather everybody together? Why don't you go to the tents of everybody?" And uh, and actually, what happens first? He tells him, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill all these people. Why don't you get out of my way?" And Moses says, "Are you really gonna kill everybody?" So here again, Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. Are you really gonna kill everybody? Because these handful of people over here are idiots. Are you really going to do that? And the Lord says, okay, go into the village, go into the encampment, and tell everybody to move out of the way. (laughs) Tell everybody that's not those idiots, move out of the way. And so they do. They go get everybody out of the way. And the Lord opens up the earth and swallows them whole. Uh, Look at Numbers 16, 31 to 35. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So, that, so they, they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them. And they perished in the midst of the assembly, and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up! And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. All right. Well, that that surely taught them. That's the end of that. You just saw the earth open up and swallow whole the men who complained against Moses and the leadership and all their families, and all their possessions. The Lord was unbelievably accurate. Think about that for just a second. All those men, and then the ones offering incense, the ones that were part of Korah's rebellion, that were bringing incense before the Lord, as they were told to do, he consumed all them too. You saw this happen to the point that you turn around and you run because you're afraid it might get you too. And what happens next? But as they pick up and they travel, they complain against Moses again. They're grumbling and they're complaining because they're thirsty this time. They lack water. Well, we we don't have water. Now, you remember this, don't you? This has happened before. What happened the last time they complained about water? Speak to the rock, the water yeah, tap the rock was the last time Yeah, tap the rock was the last time and, and in fact, it was it was dirty water, it was you know spoiled undrinkable water and they asked the Lord. Well, actually, they didn't ask the Lord. They complained against Moses. And Moses asked the Lord on behalf of the people. There we go again. The people complaining about Moses. Moses interceding on their behalf. God threatening to destroy the children of Israel. Moses interceding on their behalf. God telling him, fine, here's the solution. Tap the rock and water will come out. This time, he tells them, okay, speak to the rock and water will come out. And so, but here's the problem. When Moses is human, you can only take so much. And, and I just, I have to, I'm, I'm, this is totally subjective here. I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to put my Moses hat on and just imagine what it would feel like. Um, surprisingly, not that hard, uh, but... As he's leading these people, it's one thing to hear the criticism from some in the congregation. I know. I think it's probably altogether different to hear it from your brother and your sister. I can almost guarantee you that's, that's different. And then on top of that, to hear it from the priests who are, they, see, they should get it. They should understand and they don't. By this point, Moses is haggard and worn. He's tired, and it's obvious. Because the Lord tells him, speak to the rock. Um, but then look at what happens in Numbers 22 to 9. Somebody read that. Should be on the back page there, second one down. Read the next one, too, if you don't mind, Babs. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water do not abide with me, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. Now hold it right there. We'll read 12 in just a second. It seems a little bit harsh that Moses is going to be punished for this. I think. It feels that way. I think we always feel that way when we look at Moses. Look at what he's had to deal with. Look at what he's had to put up with. And so he gets up there and he says, there's some problems though with with what he says. If you just look at at the words that he uses. Look at uh, verse uh, 11, I believe it is. Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff twice. Okay? That's That's a problem. Why? He He wasn't supposed to do that. He was supposed to speak to it. Okay? But why why does he strike it instead of speaking to it? Well, he was ticked. Okay? That's obvious. He was ticked. Yeah. If you look back at verse 10, he says, "...shall we bring water out of this rock?" And you got to wonder if God's kind of asking him, who's this we? you got a mouse in your pocket? Who are you talking about? We shall we bring. I'm the one bringing. What are you talking about? But So it, it's, it is a wonder. You kind of go, well, okay, maybe he just misspoke. But the fact that he strikes the rock instead of, I don't know, kicking it or whatever, probably means it's a call back to the first time he got water out of a rock. If you couple his we... With his striking the rock, it may seem like Moses is kind of getting a little bit of a power trip. Like so that took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, as we talked about the last time Moses strikes the rock, you see uh, God telling him, I will go before you and you strike the rock. Well Paul in the New Testament picks up on that and says the rock is Christ. So it wasn't just that God was going before him preparing the way, it's that God was on the rock and he was taking the strike of judgment. That's what the way Paul's framing it is that that God is saying now Moses gets up there in front of the rock and instead of speaking to it, he strikes it. Well that's a problem. He's probably getting a little bit going to his head. I mean I don't necessarily blame him for that. I know I would probably be in the same situation if people that grumbled against me just watched the earth open up and swallow them whole. (laughs) That would have probably gone to my head too, I think. And so he's standing up there and he strikes a rock and that's a big no-no. But why is it a big no-no? Well, God tells him in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given. The problem was not just that Moses had sinned. I'm sure he had sinned other times, maybe even privately had sinned. I don't think that was squarely the issue. It was that the way he sinned brought the Lord's name along with it. It wasn't just Moses the human that had looked at a woman lustfully or had stubbed his toe in the middle of the night and said a curse word. It was that in front of the congregation he had taken the words of God and he had twisted them to be his own words. And failed to uphold the name of the Lord as holy. And if there's one thing that the Lord cares about above all all of the things, it's his own name. And so for that, Moses is punished along with the rest of the children of Israel. He's going to die in the wilderness as well. All right, questions about that so far? Questions up to now? Don't take my application, Timothy. Uh, (laughs) I asked for questions. (laughs) I'm just teasing. Well, this should be it. By this point, they've seen all their family die they've seen the earth opened up and swallow some priests whole and all their family die they've seen they know that they're going to die in the wilderness they're not going to get to see the promised land now they've seen even their own leader who god fought on behalf now he's not going to make it so that's it no more grumbling and complaining it's all done now oh there's no point in it we're all just going to be out here and die nope People complain again, so <laughs> not just as they're they're traveling along, they get tired, and the people continue to complain and so what happens? but the Lord sends some fiery serpents to attack them, and this time the serpents come and bite them they're venomous, probably what it means to be fiery a fiery serpent is that they're venomous like cobras or something like that, or asps as would be common in the area. Um, they attack all of the people, and the people are going to die. And so what happens as a result? What do you think? I'll give you, I'll give you a hint. So they, people complain. The Lord kills them, or the Lord starts to kill them, threatens to kill them. What happens? Moses intercedes on their behalf. What shall I do, Lord? What do I do about this? Okay, Moses. Make a bronze serpent put it on a pole, and lift it up. And everyone that looks at the bronze serpent will be healed. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? That's exactly what you would do, right, if this was happening. In fact, if you get snake-bitten this summer, that's what I would recommend. If the, pie, the Tuscaloosa python gets you, um, don't try to fight it. Don't call 911, for goodness sake. Just make a bronze serpent, look at it, everything will be fine. Uh... <laughs> I just wanted to mention the Tuscaloosa python. I thought that was... Um, so Moses makes the bronze serpent. Everyone looks at it, and, and they're, they're healed. Now, why, why does he do this? Why is this how the Lord heals their wounds? Well, this is picked up on in the New Testament. Do you remember where and by whom? She's already there. And by whom? Who, first, tell us who... The, Wait, wait, wait. Should I say who says it? Let's not say who says it. Just read verses 14 and 15 out of chapter 3. And who says that? It's Jesus. Where is that? Do you remember? John 3. John 3. Right before we're going through John every other every other week, so he cheated. (laughs) Good memory. Um, John chapter three verses fourteen and fifteen. You'll remember John chapter three verses fourteen and fifteen because it's followed by a very very famous verse, verse sixteen, right? So so it seems as though Jesus is calling back to that, saying, "I'm the bronze serpent." Just as Moses took the bronze serpent and lifted it up. Because his question is the question is, how how is one born again? How does one receive eternal life? That's the question in John chapter 3, as John, as Jesus spends some time talking with Nicodemus. What is this whole rebirth that you're talking about? How is one born again? And Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and everyone looked at it for salvation. So also the son of man is going to be lifted up and everyone who believes in his sacrifice will have eternal life. It's a method of salvation. It's the method God has chosen to provide salvation for his people. And it happens to be through judgment. Well, what do we have in the wilderness? God judging the people with the fiery serpents. How do they receive salvation? With the fiery serpent, by looking at it. God is using the method of judgment to provide salvation for his people. Jesus brings that into the New Testament. And I think possibly, I think probably, I think definitely, that the reason Moses is told to lift up the fiery serpent is because Jesus is going to be lifted up in John chapter 20 or whatever. I think it's with intention that that's done. Does Moses know that? Probably not. But I think God does, and I think he's going to use that in the future. Questions about that? So foreshadowing in the Old Testament. Shocker. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Now, you, you read a lot of people, and they, look, they say, like, all oh, the New Testament authors, they're just looking back there, and they're grasping at straws. Jesus is reaching back there and grasping at straws. Don't believe a word of that. I think every last thing that happens to the children of Israel is all bringing about this one culminating story. All the New Testament, I think probably the Old Testament authors thought that as well. Um, they probably, I, I like the way it's phrased, the Old Testament authors had the same furniture in the room, they just didn't have the lights on, right? They're kind of, they're feeling about and they, they're kind of sensing there's some things going on here. They just don't have the lights turned on and then Jesus comes on and flicks on the light and we see what it was all about. Um, so, the people then in the last part, they move into the plains of Moab. And just very quickly here, the plains of Moab, you see Edom is down here. And you look, look at the pathway they take. And you'll probably remember this in some of the prophets. You should remember this in some of the prophets. Make a note of this, that the children of Israel go from the, uh, the area of Kadesh Barnea, and they travel this way, and they're going to walk through. You can see the path that they're going to take. They're going to take a kind of a shortcut. They want to come up here, and they want to enter the land up here through the, across the Jordan River. So they go this way, and they start to go into Edom, and they camp out there. And what happens in Edom? You remember? What's that? Yeah, the Edomites said, no, you can't come through. Now, who is Edom? Esau's descendants. So they're always depicted as brothers, Israel and Edom. Edom says, no, no, you can't go through here. So they go, okay, uh, they got to go all the way around Edom. And they walk back up this way. Okay, God's going to judge Edom for that. And he's going to judge them hundreds of years later. In fact, I think it's Amos. Is it Amos? Do you recall? Anybody recall? I might be wrong about that. But anyway, um, one of the minor prophets uh, calls out Edom and says, you didn't let him pass through the, the wilderness. While they're in the wilderness, I'm going to judge you for that. God's memory is long, okay? So just uh, so they go, they go up here through the plains of Moab, and now they're they're encamped over in this area in the plains of Moab, and it makes some people nervous. There's nearly a mil- there's probably more than a million people camped out by your territory, and they're uh, massive. That's a massive group of people. And so the king of Moab gets really uh, scared of Israel being in and near his territory. And so Balak, the king of Moab, gets really nervous. He goes to Balaam, the uh, uh, prophet, a seer, an uh, enchanter, a diviner in the land, and says, or a, a famous diviner in the area, and says, uh, "I need you to come come out here and and." Curse the people of Israel. And at first Balaam says, Well, oh, that's a lot of money. And then he kind of consults the Lord and the Lord says, Don't go. And then he says, I can't go. The Lord told me no. And he says, Well, I'll pay you even more. And he says, Well, oh, let me see, Lord, are you sure? Because <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of jingle that would be in my pocket. And the Lord says, fine, go, but you're only gonna tell what you're only gonna do what I tell you. And so Balaam's on his way, and this is where we get the famous scene where Balaam is on the donkey, and the donkey stops in the middle of the road because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in front of him. And Balaam gets off the donkey, and he says, What what are you doing? Why don't you go? And the the donkey is, like, refusing to go. And so Balaam starts beating his donkey, and the donkey says, I've served you so many times these years, and, and now you would beat me? Have I given you any reason to beat me? And Balaam, without missing a beat, just says, Well, no, but you won't go. Now. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but if my donkey started talking to me, I'm out. <laughs> I'm running. And he doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat. And so finally the Lord opens his eyes to see the angel of the Lord is there, and he says, Look, you will tell him only what I tell you to say. And so Balaam goes and he opens up his mouth. He takes the money and he opens up his mouth what we think to give a curse. Over the children of Israel. Remember, they are out in the plains over here. Now, if you uh, Moab and Edom, actually the whole thing, there's there's this big uh, mountain range, kind of if you will, like a a rift that's right here. And so they're standing on top of this rift, and they're overlooking the people, uh, the children of Israel, and camp probably right about there. And they're seeing all these people. And so Balaam is on top. The children of Israel don't even really know that this is going on and Balaam stands up there and he opens up his mouth and he gives a blessing to the children of Israel. What are you doing? You're blessing them. I paid you good money. Okay, 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 okay. Let me, let me do it again. He opens up his mouth a second time and he gives them a blessing. What are you doing? I paid you good money. Okay, 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 okay. Let me do it again. And the third time he opens up his mouth, he not only gives them a blessing, but he says this in Numbers 24, 9. Uh, This is part of his blessing. He's talking about Israel, and he says, He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. What is that? You know that. Where does that come from? What is it? Genesis 12. Genesis 15, I think it is. Genesis 15. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Balaam, standing on top of the ridge, reiterates the blessing of Abraham over the children of Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. What are you doing? I paid you good money. Okay, okay, okay. One more time. Fourth time, part of his blessing is this. Listen to this. Numbers 24, 17. I see him... But not now, I behold him, but not near. He's talking about a figure out in the in the distance. Balaam is looking out in the distance, and he sees him. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Some people think he's talking about David, but if you continue to read, what his blessing is seems very evident that David may be a type of what he's talking about, but it's Christ that he's prefiguring. It's Christ that he's blessing. And how is it that Israel is going to bless the nations? How is it that the promise of Abraham is going to be fulfilled? It's through Jesus. Now, what's, what's so fascinating about this What is so fascinating, I think, about the entire book of Numbers is that you see two things happening. God has put Moses over the people as a leader. And it says in Numbers, there wasn't a meeker man in all the world than Moses. We assume he didn't write that himself. (laughs) But maybe he did, I don't know. But there wasn't a meeker man in all all of Israel, all the world, than Moses. God has put Moses over his people for a reason. Why? Because when they turn their stubborn hearts and they refuse to obey God, and he threatens to condemn them and to kill them right there, Moses is going to intercede on behalf of his people. Moses is the kind of person that even when people curse him, he blesses them. So you see that over and over and over again. Moses interceding on behalf of the stubborn-hearted people, even though most of us in this room would be tempted to just step back and go, you know what, forget it. But then we also see that in spite of their stubborn rebellion, God is bent on fulfilling His promises. He is not going to fail in fulfilling his promises. But it should be a warning to us. Because I, I'm kind of like Timothy, I think that we are probably also tempted to grumble and complain. Fair statement? Maybe that's just an Old Testament thing. Well, that, that was just an Old Testament command. God would surely not do anything about that now, except for Philippians 2 14 and following. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a twisted, crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. For Paul, the difference between a child of light and a child of darkness is grumbling and complaining. Why? Because when you grumble and complain, it's not against whomever you're grumbling and complaining against. It's against God himself. Well, what does the wicked and twisted generation do? All of what they do is grumbling and complaining against God. He didn't make me this way. He he made me this way, so I'm I'm fine to be this way. If God didn't make me this way, he's going to punish me. Well, then... He can jump off a cliff, or they have some other colorful words to say to him. It's a re- they're rebelling right now against gender, against God making us male and female. All of society is rebelling against God. But when we grumble, grumble and complain, how are we any different? The book of Numbers tells us we're not, and that's exactly what it is. Well, what about venting? What about I just need to, I just need to get this off my chest. No, you don't. That's what prayer is. That's not what venting to my wife is. I'm guilty of that. That's what prayer is. Cast your cares on Him. He cares for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how often. I grumble and complain. In spite of the fact that every last one of us in here, if we look around, we are so fortunate. We are so fortunate. Our brothers and sisters around the world are dying for their faith. They're running and hiding. They're fearing right now that somebody's going to walk into their house And take them and put them in prison or kill them. We are so fortunate. So many of our brothers and sisters around the world are in abject poverty and don't know where their next meal is coming from. They live in a a house with three walls and hardly a roof over their head. They're braving the elements, they're cold. We are so fortunate. We have nothing to complain about. You have blessed us immensely. Forgive us. Allow us instead to come to you in rejoicing. To come to our brothers and sisters in rejoicing. Knowing that no matter how different things are, how bad maybe things are at the time, We have every reason to rejoice and every reason to put our hope in you. For we have salvation. We have immense blessings. May we reflect on those. May those fuel our praise and not our complaints. In Jesus' name, amen.